Why don't you grab your Bibles? We're going to go to Hebrews 12, continuing on in a series. And as you turn there, before we do anything else, we're going to pray. So would you turn your attention just to the Lord for a few more moments? Father, we just thank you for the privilege we have this morning to come and behold you. And it's my desire, I pray our desire, not to come away thinking, well, that was a good service, that was a good message, but instead to be overcome by the greatness of our glorious Savior, to behold you and to become more like you. What a, a privilege it is that you would call us and so completely make a way for us to come boldly into your very presence. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us this morning lift up our eyes to see you, lift up the gaze and the affections of our hearts. May we behold afresh the wonder and the majesty of who you are. As we turn to your scriptures, Lord, use them to open up our eyes and the eyes of our heart to the fullness of who you are, that we might behold and become more like you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we began this series simply called We the Church, the heart and the intention over the coming weeks is to hopefully rediscover what it is that this mysterious and wondrous thing called the church, what, what, what is it? What is it about? What is it that we are called to be? What is it that we're called to look like? And we began last week in Ephesians 1 with this recognition that this was God's intention and idea, the, the mystery of the outworking of the plan of God through the Lord Jesus Christ in this mysterious union called the body of Christ. He is the head. And in fact, as Ephesians finished and as Paul brings that letter to a conclusion, he says it is a body and a people that he loves. He loves his bride. His desire is for us, his people. And so we asked the question, what is it that we think of church? Discussing some of perhaps the, uh, the good and the bad ideas that come to mind with that particular phrase in view. And then we asked ourselves, well, what is it that God has in mind? This is his intention. What is it that he was envisioning in this mysterious body and what it would look like and how he would function and what it is that we were called to be? That's setting the scene, and this morning, I want to encourage our hearts, and I want to talk to us about the supreme call to worship. Supreme call to worship. We could have had a little more excitement. We're going to talk about worship, being a people of worship, this high, this ultimate, this priority call for us to be a worshiping people. What is it that God invites us to perhaps more than anything else that's in his desire, that's his delight to give us this opportunity through the power of his blood and it is for us to be and to become and to behold and to be changed by this incredible reality and invitation of worship. So let me ask you up front this morning, what is it you think of what comes to mind when we talk about this notion of worship? Perhaps you're thinking one thing that came to mind was my worship playlist. 
sitting there amongst my contemporary playlists, my many teeny pop playlists, very up on the teenage music, you'll be happy to know, of our current day. But there it is, it's a worship playlist. Perhaps as you think of worship, you think of it as, as that unnecessary and at times un- uncomfortable moment in the services as we gather. Perhaps from certain environments, you think of it as this dry, liturgical formality. Perhaps it's the warm-up to the more important aspects of the service. It's something on the peripheral, but not really central. Perhaps depending on what stream of the church you've been uh, used to, it's more of an experience. It's more of an entertainment center where the focus is at times more on those worshipping rather than the one who is worthy of all worship. Well, I want to explore and perhaps dispel some of those notions of worship and bring us back to this biblical wonder and mandate of what worship really is. So if you're in Hebrews chapter 12, here is the passage. And there's many places that we could go to. In fact, there's hundreds of passages of Scripture in the Old and the New Testament that talk about this notion of worship. It's a huge topic. But in particular, I want to focus this morning on this corporate reality and notion of worship. There's plenty of other aspects that would be worthy of our attention, but that's in my heart for us this morning. And this is a wonderful passage, I believe, that speaks to and exhorts and encourages us as God's people as to what this incredible thing called worship is. Hebrews 12, of course, the chapter begins with the writer giving us this picture of of running the race. We're to set our eyes on Christ, run the race that is before us. He encourages not to grow weary in our pursuit of Him, weary and faint-hearted. And then verse 18, this is the exhortation. This is where he concludes this wonderful portion of Scripture. It says, for you, and this is to to the church, to the the people of God, to those who are running this race. He says, "For, for you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose, make, whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now he's painting a picture here of this Old Testament encounter that the people of God had with the Lord as he brought them out of Egypt and he brought them to this mountain upon which his glory was revealed and it was a a terrifying sight. We'll come back to that, but keep that picture in mind. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the dwelling place of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, in joyful gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He goes on, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but he... Now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but the heavens. 
This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, as, as a result of that reality and this incredible picture of what it is that we've come to, this is his final exhortation. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So there's two realities to this incredible passage of Scripture. First of all, there's this context. He's saying, remember where it is that you've been brought to, brought from, and brought to. The Old Testament were brought to brought before this mountain as the glory of this God who'd redeemed them, who'd brought his people out of Egypt, out of bondage and captivity as they witnessed his majesty and his glory coming upon a mountain. And understandably, they, they were afraid. In fact, if you read on the account, they missed their moment because it was the Lord's intention that all of them would come and worship him and meet with him personally. But instead, because of their, their fear, because of their desire for their own comfort, they said, well, let's, let's just send Moses on our behalf. And tragically, that is what happened. They missed out on their moment. But he's saying, you're not being brought to that sort of a context. Here's, here's the context as, as you run this race, as you come before God. This is the picture that you're coming before the very presence of the living God. You're coming and gathering in the presence of the angelic hosts. He says, in festal gathering. Don't you love that picture? That they're rejoicing, they're delighting in the power and the majesty of God. He said, you're gathering in the presence and amongst the saints of the ages. These ones who have gone before us. The saints that we're surrounded with in this present day, all proclaiming. He's worthy. He's worthy. And you're gathering most important before the one who is the mediator of a new covenant, King Jesus himself, his blood that speaks a better word, that is able to rescue and redeem us. He's saying that that's, that's the context in which you gather. And in the midst of that context, there is a call. There's a response, and it's a very simple call. It says, and therefore, because of that context, come and give God worship. Come and give Him worship. Come before Him, not just with your worship, but as, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12, as a living sacrifice. This is your act of worship. We don't just do worship. We are worshippers who give all that we are in worship of our King. So let me ask you this. What, what do you think worship looks like if we have that kind of a context? Because I, I don't think that any of us could witness that kind of majesty, could reflect for a moment on that picture that the, the writer to Hebrews has painted and then go back to just comfortable, nice little services. So remember that context and then just hold a nice little gathering and do your little thing and go through 
the motions. You see, that is a context that demands a radical and incredible response. You run differently. You live differently. Your, your services, your life looks different in that kind of place. Look at every encounter that we read through the Scripture, and there's many of them as people are taken into the presence of the living God. As Isaiah beholds the majesty of the Lord, as the Apostle John, he hears his voice, come up here. They, they experience something that changes them radically and profoundly. They're not just standing up there one, one moment and then, oh, well, that's, you know, that's good, and just back to normal life the next. You know, there is this radical moment that de demands a response and profoundly marks and changes the way that they live their lives. So let's explore this a little bit. What, what is worship then? What is it? Well, the English word literally comes from this combination of worth-ship, of ascribing worth, value and affection, we could say, to someone or to something. And here's the reality that we've got to grab if we're truly to grasp what it means to worship. See, the question is not why should we worship. The question is what will we worship? What will we worship? See, we are made to be worshippers. We are. It's not why should we worship. It's what will we worship? We will ascribe worth and beauty, affection, devotion to something. Our hearts are made to respond. They are. That's just the way that we've been created. Think of the last time you witnessed something spectacular. It might have been a, a sunrise or a sunset, a masterpiece, a feat of nature, this passionate, shall we say in our culture, a, a sporting feat. As a passionate sporting fan, I'm sure there's none of them here. You witness these things and it, it demands a response, doesn't it? There's no thought as you witness this or someone scores the, the winning try of, should I respond? Is, is this, you know, there's no tension there, is there? It's just this spontaneous response. Our hearts are made to be moved by beauty and by wonder and awe. So it's not whether we will be moved, it is what we will be moved by. We worship. Think about this for a moment. Your heart has already ascribed ultimate worth and value to something, perhaps to many things. So the only question that we can ask ourselves is, is it something that is wrong or is it something that is right? One path leads to worthless idols. Another path leads us to life. What is it that your heart has ascribed worth and value to? And here's the thing that we've got to realize if we're to capture worship. See, worship is ultimately this invitation to that which we were created for. That's what is at its essence. We were made to encounter and be moved by beauty, but not the beauty of a masterpiece or a sunrise. They're all supposed to reflect and point us somewhere. Not to the creation, but to the creator. That's the end. We're made to be moved by him. We're made to be moved by this encounter with the living God. This life-changing glimpse of his greatness. 
His awesomeness, His wonder, the power, the mercy, the goodness, and the loving kindness of God. That's what we're created for. Everything else is lesser idols that will lead to destruction. So worship is that place where we see Him for who He is, the one who's worthy of all our worship, then as we behold His majesty, His might, and His worth, we let nothing get in the way of our pursuit of Him. Once you've tasted of that, there is nothing else. There's nothing else that satisfies but to turn our hearts towards Him. So if you want a definition for our purpose this morning, true worship is, is simply this. It's to see and to know Him in such a way that everything else is lived in response to that reality. To see Him and to know Him in such a profound way that everything else we do, personally, as a church, corporately, as we gather, it moves in res response to that simple reality of who He is, the King of glory. So here's the simple reality that there is real worship, but there are many counterfeits. Worship becomes so many things, it's not. We talked about the worship of, of many things around us, but even within the church. A.W. Tozer, he writes this back in the, the 1940s, a different generation. It's a wonderful book I'd recommend, simply titled, Whatever Happened to Worship? He said, the world is perishing for the lack of the knowledge of God, and the church is famished for want of His presence. Worship is the missing jewel of the church. We've become a generation of people who worship our work, who work at our play, and play at our worship. Remembering, he wrote, back, he wrote that back in the 1940s. Slightly different context, but many similar threads, isn't there? In, in his particular context, it was a mainstream Protestant evangelical environment. It was a church full of works, full of doing good things for God. There's nothing wrong with doing good things, but in the midst of doing good things, he was calling them back to that place of the best thing. This is what's missing. Where's, where's the presence of God? We're doing all this stuff, but where's God? Where's God in the midst of all this? And if he's not in the midst, then what's the point of all the other stuff? Another wonderful, more recent book written in 2020 by a guy named Jeremy Riddle. And his book's entitled The Reset, Returning to the Heart of Worship and a Life of Undivided Devotion. Now, he's writing in a very different context. If you don't know Jeremy, he's someone I know a little better than A.W. Tozer. I did shake his hand once and have a brief conversation about homesteading. Adam can tell you that story if you're interested. But he's a guy who's quite prominent in worship circles, particularly more your uh, evangelical, Pentecostal, big worship conferences all around the world, uh, tens if not hundreds of thousands of people at different times. So he's one of these prominent worship leader guys, has been for the last decade. And yet he, he writes this book because he's become disillusioned and discouraged that in the midst of worship being perhaps, if anything, too, too prominent, it had lost the heart of what it was actually about and become entertainment centers, more concerned with professional 
worshipping rather than the presence of God. And he says this, writing in that context just recently. He says, worship is not an industry. It's not a platform. It's not about worship leaders, worship projects, new songs, new artists, new movements, new brands. Worship is not a trade. It's not a career path or a professional line of work. Worship is the sound of a covenantal people, a people betrothed to Jesus. It's the sound of their love, adoration, and zealous devotion to the only one found worthy. He goes on, he says, It's my burning mission to see purity in worship restored to the house of God. I'm determined to see whatever obstacles that oppose true worship removed and torn down and determined to see an uncompromising generation rise and flood the earth with the mighty sound of his glory. And so I paint that picture just to illustrate this notion that there is many counterfeits. There is. But at the same time, there is the genuine article that we are called to be and become. And I would encourage us because there is something that happens when we come as his people, not just a worship team, not individuals, but as the people of God. That's the call in Hebrews. Recognize the context and hear the call. We come with that genuine desire to engage with God for who he is. This worship that reveals and brings us into an encounter with the fullness of God. And leaves us with no other option but to give ourselves truly to that pursuit. See, I believe that there is this kind of worship that can ignite our churches. That can strip away the religious veneer, the false idols. And get us back to this reality that will restore true spirituality and replace these cheap counterfeits that we have created in place of God. And here's my encouragement to us as a church family. See, I believe with all my heart that as we gather corporately, there's something so special. Now, I don't want to undermine or undervalue the, you know, the importance of, of private and personal worship. Scripture talks a lot about that. But there is this special and significant commanded blessing as people gather together. That's why Hebrews says, says, do not forsake that moment. Jesus says, when you gather together, there I am in the midst of you. Now, that's not to say that Jesus is not with us when we're worshipping by ourselves. He is. But there is a special and significant call to the gathering together of God's people with that priority of worshipping him. But as we gather together, we, we ought to witness the hand of God in our midst. Like that should just be normal to encounter his presence, to see him moving amongst his people, to see his, his gifts released, to see people healing, to hear the, the barren woman crying out, to, to see God moving amongst his people. That's, that's just normal. We're supposed to be in awe. We're supposed to be in this place of wonder, mesmerized by the life-giving, life-flowing power of God. I think there is this need for us to remember, this is Old Covenant, Old Testament, the cry of Moses, this man who encountered the presence of the Lord, and yet it just left him hungry and desiring more. At one point, God says, well, you know, I could give you all my benefits. How about that? 
You can still be the covenant people. I'll still bless you. I'll still be with you. And Moses is like, God, no, if your presence is not with us, forget everything else. Forget it. I'll take the presence and leave behind all of that. If that's the choice, we want you and we want your presence evident and at work in the midst of your people. If only we would become that kind of a worshipping people again. Lord, would you come as we come to worship you, as we make that the priority. We are longing for a greater reality of your presence. Now there's a, a survey, a, a Barna survey there, one of the major uh, church poll organizations, particularly out of the, the US, the US context, about a, a dozen or so years ago. And they asked this question to church attendees, regular church attendees. Have you ever experienced God in your church service? Interestingly, it said less than a third of people answered, yes, we have. Now, the other surprising thing from this particular survey is that most people said they were very happy with their church. It was almost like this notion or this reality that we should actually gather together and experience God's outworked presence in our midst was foreign to their mindsets. And I'd say for so many churches, they resemble, or pe people out for a restaurant meal resemble, re resemble people in their pews. There's a lot in common. People are well-behaved, they're presentable. Most of all, are, are satisfied with the predictable experience. For many, you know, the mark of a good meal or a good service is, well, we come away and in the Australian way, we say, well, it wasn't too bad. What was it about? How was church? It wasn't too bad. It was all right. It was predictable. We came. We left. But we exited the same way we entered, unmoved, unchanged, unaltered, and still very happy to return the next time. See, I would suggest there is this place, and this is what Hebrews is, is really encouraging people to. You know, the, the people of God in the Old Testament, they missed their moment. Yes, it was uncomfortable. Yes, there was glory and fire that was falling upon the mountain. Yes, it was, it, it was, it was nothing comfortable. Like the, the normal little restaurant experience had gone out the window. And yet they said, you know what? We'll just, we'll just stand at a distance. And so there's almost a cry in this passage in Hebrews for saying, recognize what is your birthright. This is what God has made possible. Do not be like them and stand at a distance. You weren't put on this planet just to go through the motions, just to turn up and think, goodness, well, you know, how soon can the service end and I can get on to my real life and head, head into all the other more important things I have today and this coming week. Don't miss the, the high call and the supreme call to worship. This kind of encounter that disrupts the normal. I said before, but I guarantee you that Isaiah, that John, that anybody else, that Moses is encountering the glory of God. I don't think he came away. He's like, oh, yeah, it wasn't too bad. Yeah, it was, yeah, it wasn't too bad. Went through the motions, ticked the box, be back next week. Wasn't, I mean, he came out glowing, right? People are like, dude, can you put something over your face because you're freaking me out? You're like radioactive lit because you've been in the presence of God. 
And yet that's the invitation that God gives to us. Is there a people that will hear the cry to come to genuinely seek Him above all other things? So there is an invitation, very quickly, a couple of aspects of this. It's an invitation to a supreme call, supreme purpose. (laughs) The worship in the throne room, as we glimpse in there, it's not the means to the end. It's not, well, well, can can we get through the holy, holy, holies and then move on to the the proper bit? That is, that's the supreme call. That's what we were created for, is to worship him and encounter him, to behold him and to become more like him. It's an invitation to a supreme call. It's an invitation to unrivaled passion. I often hear this reality. People say, well, thanks for the sermon on worship. I'm not really a worshiper. I'm, you know, that's for other people. You know, they do the flags and dance and sing. I, don't, I mean, I can't sing. I can't. I'm not really a worshiper, which is interesting, isn't it? Because if you spend a moment with them and you say, well, what is it that you're passionate about? Get them talking about something. Might be football for the blokes. Might be knitting and they come alive. And I, I don't know what. Something. You, you find that there's something for everybody that, they, that just makes them come alive. This, this you know... This passion. I mean, here's the mission. Let's let nothing in our lives cause us to come alive more than a moment spent with God's people in pursuit and in praise of Him. I mean, if there was a fraction of the passion, we, we, we sometimes talk about you know, the blokes on the, the football game, but let me tell you about who watched the Commonwealth Games netball. Anyone recently, the Commonwealth Games, we've got very keen netballers in our house. And of all the tickets over in London, like the netball was packed out, this room full of people and every move these ladies made. Now, there, was, there was a charged atmosphere. There was, there was something that was moving people in the midst of that particular moment. If there was a fraction of that passion in the church, I think we'd be quietly escorting people to the door, wouldn't we? Like, dude, I understand, but that's a bit too much. It's a bit too much. I mean, I've had people here over the years at times, not often, but from time to time, you know, I love the church, but can we, can we just tone it down a little bit? Now, people are getting a little bit too excited. And, you know, that, that comment is made, and I think... What, what are we missing? See, there's this wonderful story, isn't there? As Jesus is sitting down, he's reclining for a meal with the Pharisee, and I resisted not preaching from this particular passage, which normally I do in the area of worship, because I think it's just a wonderful passage. And in the midst of this nice, comfortable meal, this woman just busts in for, for no reason other than interrupting everything around her to just pour out her jar of perfume on the feet of Jesus. And of course, everybody in the room is offended. They're like, surely he knows what this woman is like. I mean, she's not a, a reputable character. Surely, like, how can he allow her just to bust in? I mean, this, this is completely out of order. And yet Jesus not only commends her, but he says this radical statement. He says, whatever the gospel is proclaimed, tell this story about the woman. And it's because, as I often say when we preach from that passage... In, in that particular time, there were so many people seeking Jesus. 
for what he could give. Even his disciples, the week before he died, they're jostling for who's going to be greatest. I'm going to be greater. I'm going to have this position, that position. They were seeking him for what they could get. But there's one woman who seeks him out just for what she could give, just to pour everything she had on his feet as an offering of worship. See, the real question is, it's not really why she had such passion as she, she burst into that scene. Because I think if we just encounter Jesus, there is no other response. Maybe the real problem is why at times we feel more comfortable being in the shoes of that Pharisee. Enjoying a nice little meal with Jesus. Yeah, well, I'm happy to come and hang out and ask him a few questions, and... but not really content, not really willing to encounter the God that would bring me to my knees in an act of worship that extravagant. So worship is his supreme call. It's unrivaled passion. And very quickly, the last one, it's an invitation to intentional participation. See, nowhere in this passage does it say, and gather together the priests and allow them to make acceptable sacrifices of worship. Nowhere does it say this is supposed to be for the elite, for the one or two people in the room who can sing better than the others. This is a call to each and every believer. In fact, 1 Corinthians 14 is a wonderful passage. He talks about... It's, it's got to be some order, but everybody's got to be coming together. So the Lord's moving like there's this unique picture. God doesn't just use one or two. He uses all of us. And he goes on 14 verse 25 and he says, And this is the moment as the Spirit is moving, not through individuals but the body, that those coming in, they declare, well, surely God is amongst his people. Isn't that what we desire? Not for people to go away and say, well, it's a good service. But what a glorious Savior and his power that was at work changing and transforming his people as we come ready to worship him. So I have just a passion and a burden on my heart this morning, and we'll get the worship team back up if we can. I'm just going to finish with a bit of worship. To encourage us, to exhort us, to challenge us as a church to come back to that place of true and genuine worship. There is something significant, it's a priority, but there is a power as God's people come together with that passionate, genuine desire to worship Him. To see that context, to to never lose sight of that, but to hear the call. Here's the response. We're coming to worship Him. We're coming to encounter Him. We're coming to give ourselves fully and completely to that pursuit. You know, I I genuinely believe that the Lord, in the midst of everything that we've seen over the past season, that there is this call of God on His people to come back to that place of pure devotion, of pure worship, that there is this this sifting, 
There's this refining that's happening in the church. There's a purifying as God is he's stripping away all, all of the religious veneer, all of the false idols, even within the church, that we've placed our worth and our value and honor upon. And that he, his desperate and genuine desire is to bring us back to that place of true spirituality where we replace those cheap counterfeits. Who wants a, an entertainment? Think of that anywhere. Who wants just formulaic rituals and religion? We're here for the living God. We were born and we are called for something so much greater. And I want to see us not sell ourselves short, but to press in at this time to become the worshippers that He desires. Amen? Let me pray for you. So we just turn our attention back upon Him. What is this worship we're talking about? The definition was this. True worship is this moment where we see and know Him in such a way that everything else is lived in response to that reality. It's beholding Him. Just a moment in His glory. There's no other response than like that woman with the alabaster box just pushing past anything that's comfortable or convenient. Pour out my worship on his feet. How do we get there? Well, let me ask you this question. One more question. We give him the worth, the honor, and the attention, and the affection that he desires. So for us as a church, but for us individually, what is it? What are the idols? What are the objects of affection? taken his place and Lord I pray this morning for us as your people both that there would be something afresh in our hearts that just ignites in this area of your invitation to be true worshippers people who prioritize and desire above all else to seek after you all the days of our lives. And at the same time this morning, Lord, I pray that there would be a grace to repent, that you'd cause us personally and even as a church, Lord, show us any other idol, any other thing that has taken your rightful place. Anything else, even, even good works, even good things, that have distracted us from that reality of you being the sole desire and delight of our hearts. But I want to pray this morning as well, if there's anybody here in the room, if there's anybody joining us online and they've never encountered you, 
never had their eyes opened either to the depth of their need, the wages of, of sin that bring death, the idols of this world that lead us to destruction. But also at the same time, your gift of grace and mercy that reaches out to rescue and to redeem, to draw us into that reality of what we were created for, which is to know you, that you made possible through the shedding of your blood that cleanses us of our sin and that provides reconciliation and restoration with relationship. Pray, Lord, open their eyes to see you for who you are this morning. And may they come to the foot of your cross with wide-eyed wonder to receive the graces that you extend.